Good morning and blessed Linden Tide. Today is Friday, March 3rd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more at lhfmissions.org. Well, today is the first Friday of March, and as such, today's episode is a free text Friday episode. That's when we depart just for one day from whatever book we're covering to talk about something different. Well, today we're in between books, so to speak. We just finished up our pastoral epistle series with Titus, and Monday we're going to take up a new book, the prophet Hosea. So being right in between, it sounds like a good time for us to take up sort of an ad hoc topic, and that is going to be this morning about being a Christian neighbor. We'll be dipping into Luke chapter 10 and Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. But to lead us in this discussion, I'm pleased to welcome as my guest, the Reverend Keith Haney, Assistant to the President for Missions, Human Care, and Stewardship in the LCMS Iowa District West. Good morning, Pastor Haney, and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Well, good morning. So how are you doing? It's good to be back on again. Oh, I'm just delighted to have you on, and I'm great. I'm, I'm just really excited to have you on for this particular topic. As you know, when I reached out, I said I'm doing this first Friday, uh, free text first Friday kind of thing, and I just, I, I said, you know what? You pick a topic. You, you tell us what you want to talk about, and you came back and you said, you know, I want to talk about being a good Christian neighbor. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you picked that topic. I, I, but before you do, I also know that you gave a presentation at the National Youth Gathering, so maybe tell us a little bit about that, too. Yeah, it was kind of interesting because it was we were trying to figure out how do we help our young people discover maybe a lost art of what it means to be neighbor. And so I wanted to really tackle the whole racial tension thing in our country and in our world and even our church body with getting back again to God's word because we need to ground ourselves in that as we try to navigate through all the weird things that are happening in our society. Um, and just get back to what does it mean for the Christian to be a good witness to his neighbor? And so I thought, what a wonderful passage Luke chapter 10 was, because Jesus really challenges that young lawyer who's just kind of looking for justification with, okay, let's talk about what it means to be a neighbor. And so I like how Jesus took that and expanded to a deeper conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And that parable of the Good Samaritan is one of my favorites because it has this, I don't know, probably intentional double entendre effect about it because on the one hand, it is a call, as we'll probably talk mostly about today, for us to go out and be Christian neighbors to others. At the same time, it is a demonstration of what Christ has done for us. In fact, Jesus is the true Good Samaritan, and so in any instance where we act as Good Samaritans, really we're just following the biblical call to imitate our Lord, wouldn't you say? I would definitely agree because he shows us that he does not look at the outward, as Paul would say, the outward exterior of a person. He doesn't judge you by your skin color, or by whatever other factors we decide to judge people by today. But Jesus says, let's go deeper and look at the heart of God and begin with your identity and who you are in Christ. And so to be neighbor understands that we all stand at the very same spot in our journey at the foot of the cross in need of a savior because we cannot rescue ourselves. <laughs> and so whether it's me or my neighbor, we both stand there going, 
we need a savior, we need a rescuer, we need a redeemer who's going to come in on our behalf and do the things that we can't do, live the life that God requires us to live. And the gift of the Holy Spirit gives that gift to us by faith that we receive, that, that beautiful gift of now you are a child of God through that work that Christ has done across for you. Well, before we get too much into it, um, why don't we start our time together with prayer, and I would love to invite you to uh, pray for us. Definitely. Dear Father, we just thank you that we get a chance to come together to delve into your word, to have your word speak to us, speak to our hearts. Uh, the words you've read long ago still live and breathe in, in our everyday lives and in, in our words and our churches and our word and sacrament. And so we're just so thankful that we can come together as believers, brothers in Christ, and just talk about um, your word and what your word means to us as your people today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you know what? You're the boss man for this episode. It's Free Text Friday, so I'm going to let you kind of lead the charge. I'm absolutely going to jump in here and there, uh, but I, tell us a little bit. How would you start this conversation? Um, and I think my first question would be, I guess, give us a, a nutshell for what the problem is. Now, you, you, you spoke of racial healing and racial tensions you spoke in generally of just us not seeing each other for who the way God sees us, but rather seeing all the different categories we make up for ourselves. And I, I have to tell you that I feel as someone who grew up in the 80s and 90s and, and really was raised to be very, I guess, indifferent to racial differences, I, I never really saw uh this being a huge issue until I guess it began to come to a head in these last days and these later years, both on TV and even in sometimes in my own experiences. So there's part of me that's a little naive. And then there's also a part of me who is smart enough to know that sin is so pervasive in this world. It still rears its ugly head as racism and racism and discrimination and everything else. So um, how might we, I guess, soften the hearts of those who would be immediately defensive and at the same time <laughs> acknowledge and recognize that, you know what, the, the, we're all sinners and, and there are problems and, and perhaps it's better to talk about them than to ignore them. You know, that's a very loaded question, but I'll let you, I'll let you take it. <laughs> sure. So when I talk about race and racial tension, I point out that we have to understand, first of all, that this is a spiritual issue. And, and racism is, a, is spiritual warfare. And if we don't really approach it from a spiritual perspective, then we fall into the trap of trying to solve the problems with the latest diversity and inclusion training, the latest book. That and that's not where we start. And so when I start talking about it, I always start with a very simple question. I kind of try to model after Jesus. What does God expect of his children and his church? when you're talking about this issue, because that really is the heart to me of what we need to ask ourselves. What is, what does God want us to do? Um, and he gives us some pretty clear guidelines. And I think, especially in this text of, of what does he expect of his children? And so I kind of start the conversation there because like you said, it can be very, very divisive. You, you, you come at it with all of the traumas you grew up with. You grew up about 10 years, probably later than I did. So I grew up and I was born right in the middle of the 60s in Louisiana. So we're talking African-American born in the Deep South in the middle of Jim Crow and all the issues that were there. 
But my parents and my grandparents, even though they faced oppression, they saw the white only signs that you have to go around to the back to get your food. They never let me look at people differently or judge them or make a make a snap judgment about them based on the color of their skin. So I come in kind of like you do, a little bit naive, a little bit optimistic, and maybe I get I get accused by that because I come at it with a hopeful thing that we can do this. We as a church, we can lead on this. And so I try to be as optimistic about it as possible. And sometimes I get pushed back, like you're just burying your head in the sand. I'm like, no, I believe God has the ability to heal anything. If he could heal the sin problem, he can heal the race problem. So that's how I, I, I'm like you. I'm a little optimistic about it. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the South, uh, born, born in 1980. So I grew up, I guess, really in the 90s. And, you know, I lived in a community where there was uh, one black family in the whole area. <laughs> and but but at the same time, this was a beloved family and we, we didn't have any of those. I'm not saying they weren't there. Let me rephrase this. I, as a kid growing up, it was never something that I observed. Now, if I were to have them on the show and uh, the daughter was princess, she was in my grade and Annie, you know, she was well known among all the churches and she loved to sing and she was friends with everybody in town. And I imagine that if I were to speak to her directly about her struggles, perhaps the story would be different. But the way I experienced them being the one or two, one of maybe one or two black families in town, it seemed very positive. But as a grown adult, looking back, I think, you know what? I wonder how much of that was their ability to make the best out of these situations, to, to befriend people, to, to shower people with love. Because that's, if you thought of, of Annie, you knew that this was a woman who was a deep lover of Christ and one who loved her neighbor. And so, you know, I look back and go, wow, I just didn't see that. And then when I first got a job doing physical security, I worked at a mall, a super regional center. And this was while I was in college getting my criminal justice degree. And I would go around and talk about naive and there would be some people and they would be uh, disruptive and I would go up and I would, I would say, Hey, listen, you guys need to calm down, blah, blah, blah. The first thing I would get is, well, you're just being racist. And they'd call me Barney Fife and they would just tell me about how, <laughs> and it, 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 honest to goodness, brother, I was like, that never occurred to me. And then I spent a couple of years being told on a day-to-day basis when I was just doing my job that I was racist if I had you know, called out someone who was, did not look like me. And after a while you get really beat up by that, especially if you genuinely thought, no, you were, you know, you were drunk coming out of the bar, causing troubles in <laughs> right. the parking lot. Exactly. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, so it's difficult. Now, when we go into the church, we all want to think that we're all um, imitating of Christ. And I think that that's why in the parable of the good Samaritan, we see two individuals who really genuinely think that they are godly people. And yet when the push comes to shove, they don't do the right thing. Uh, brother, I think you think it'd be useful. Maybe I should just read the Good Samaritan since we'll be refer- referring to it. Yeah, be and I'll be, probably. <laughs> yeah, I'll be re- reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 25, all the way through 37. This is going to be from the English Standard Version. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. 
do this, you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jericho, Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So a beautiful parable, often written on, often misapplied sometimes, <laughs> uh, and then um, and misunderstood, but certainly something that... Jesus has told this man, not only him, but those who are listening, and of course, Luke records it for our benefit too. Uh, so continuing from there, brother, uh, where do we go next in this? Usually because I'm talking to church people, and they see this parable, and they go, oh, you know, he did the right thing. I usually push back and ask the question for church people this, who do you struggle to see as neighbor? Because it may not be a black and white issue for everybody. They may say, I have no problem with race. But I'm like, okay, well, who is that person that if you saw them on the side of the road, you'd struggle to see them as equal? Because it really gets at, at looking at our heart issues. Who, who are those people that we just find difficult to love? Uh, we see them as unlovable. Um, it may be a group of people. It may be a certain kind of person. But I like, so put yourself in the position of that that lawyer who is wrestling with that question of, you know, who is it that I really wrestle with to love? And then what do I do about that? And I love that's the simple. fact that the lawyer, well, yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead. I just want to jump in real quick and say that's, that's simple, but profound. There's a, there's a Facebook quote going around, you know how those do. It, it yeah. is, I don't know who it's from and I don't, I don't, uh, I, I'm not uh, uh, endorsing who said it. Cause I don't even know who said it, but it says something to the effect of being a Christian isn't, necessarily about loving Jesus. It's about loving Judas. And <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's, it's a scandalous way of saying just what you're saying, I think, in a way, which is, you know, when we, we bring up these issues, you might say, like I might say, well, listen, I genuinely really never had a problem with race, how I was raised. My dad wasn't raised that way. And he can tell you stories of, you know, his parents going back, et cetera, et cetera, as you mentioned. But I cannot excuse myself if you phrase it as you have just phrased it, right? Are there people who, are there people who you might say, oh, I don't, it's not that I don't think that they're loved by God because obviously I'm a good Christian, but you know, maybe there's someone else that could minister to them. I, I have to admit that maybe I do act like that sometimes. And, and right. while it might not be race, maybe it's politics, right? We, you know, they're a, they're a, a, a far righter or a far lefter. We don't want to have anything to do with them. Or, or libertarian, I guess. I don't know. You, right. you, you, whatever, whatever you find offensive, or maybe, maybe they're the the Muslims or the the Jews, people who are of religions that are so the Mormons that are counter 
to Christ in such a way that it's done a great disservice. And maybe you think, oh, well, you know, they've had their chance. There are all kinds of people. I have to tell a real quick story. When I was a brand new pastor, I was meeting with my ladies group. And this is a bunch of uh, septuagenarians, octogenarians. And we, we were talking about these different things. And I said, um, how many of you have non-Christian friends? And none of them raised their hands. And I said, wait a minute. I said, now, how many of you would hang out with hookers? <laughs> <laughs> and they were scandalized, of course. And I just thought I was so clever. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, Jesus did, you know. But as, as, as silly as that is, there's some truth to that, right? The, it's, it's the right. sick who need the physician. And, and I'm not saying that Grandma Schlitzendinger should go out and <laughs> hang out at the, at the street corner or the bad side of town. But, but I am saying that if we, don't, if we don't understand that when we look at the other person, even the person for whatever reason we don't like, even if we can't put our finger on it, that's someone for whom Christ died. And that's, and that's really important. Go ahead. It is. And if you think about what the, what the lawyer was really asking, he wasn't asking for a lesson about his neighbor. He was just going, Jesus, give me the steps I need to make sure that I get to heaven. And, and, if, and if Christians were in that same spot, we want to know that too. Jesus, is there some easy process to guarantee I get to heaven? And if he says, okay, you got to love the unlovable. He's like, whoa, whoa, that's not what I came here for. I, I didn't sign up for this. I just wanted, you know, something else. And so I, I love how he, he turns it on him, that question of how do I justify myself? And Jesus says, go do this. Go love the unlovable. Go love the person you struggle to love. And, and, and as I thought for Christians, we have to think about what that means because we're kind of ignoring the tensions around us because we don't want to be around, like you just said. We don't want to go hang out on the street corner. We don't want to go hang out in the rough part of town. But the call is, you know, how do you how do you love those people that are difficult to love? Yeah. And then he even says, and to just to completely illustrate your point, the lawyer eventually says, Well, who is my neighbor? Like <laughs> it's 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 like, you know, oh, I have to minister to the to people. Okay, I have to tell people about Jesus. All right, well. Which people? Certain kinds of people, right? You mean the good people, right? The, right, the, the Jews people. are the people I have to show mercy to, right? Not, not evil Samaritans. Right. And, and so it's an, interesting, it's an interesting, it's an interesting conversation he has because then he tells, he tells that parable and, and you see who passes by the man who fell among the robbers. The, the first being the priest. And I always joke with my congregation when I preach on this, I'm like, could you guys imagine if your car breaks down the side of the road and, you know, here comes your pastor in this car and he sees you broken down the side road because, well, I can't stop. I'm, I'm too busy. And, and you somehow make it to church. And that Sunday I'm preaching about the love of God. <laughs> you have a little that hard time be, with, the, with the pastor that doing that. You just passed by me. You know, there is a, oh, I wish I could remember the details right off the top of my head. But there was a study done, and I don't remember which seminary it was. I think it was Princeton Seminary, um, and it's a, it was called the Good Samaritan Study. It was in 1973 uh, by uh, psychologists John Darley and Daniel Batson. It was at Princeton, 
And so what was happening is the seminary students were asked to give a talk or like a sermon or a presentation on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then they were told that they had to walk to this other building to give the talk. But along the way, they had positioned a man there who would appear to be in distress. He was slumped over. He was coughing. Uh, and the seminarians would have to pass this guy by uh, on their way to this place to talk about being the Good Samaritan or the, the text. <laughs> and so obviously we know what the study was designed to test, right, whether they'd willing to stop and help the man. Well, the results were that only 40% of them stopped to help the man in distress. The other 60% hurried past, and when asked later, they said, well, I was late, or, or they, they felt like they were unprepared, or they, they, had to, they had to get there. They were just concentrating on what they had to do. And so, you know, I guess what we say here is we go, oh, look, here are these men um, who are studying to be pastors or theologians at the very least. And they, they think they know the answers, or maybe they do know the answers, but do they act on it, right? Did, does, right. Those, do, does it have any formation on their behavior, or is it all just cognitive? And I think that's always an interesting one to bring out here, too. And, and I always kind of give the pastor a little bit of benefit to that. I say, I say, now let's go back and look at the context of this, too. I'm like, you have a man who's on the side of the road. He's bleeding, and you're the priest. You're on your way to the temple. And you know that if you stop and help this bleeding, maybe even dead man, that you make yourself unclean. Now, adding that context to the story, you can understand why the priest and the Levi, both men of God, um, would say, I can't take the time to make myself unclean. I have things of the temple to do. And they could fall back on the law and say, the law says, you know, I, I, I do this, I'm unclean, and I have, you know, maybe, I, I was like, maybe it's Easter Sunday weekend or, or whatever. <laughs> and you know you can't be out of commission for seven days. You become, you know, clean again. So maybe you're thinking in the back of their minds, this is a busy road. Someone obviously is going to help, but if I, I can't make my, put myself out to become unclean to help him. So I always add that context to that for the priest to get them a little bit of a, Although Jesus kind of makes you think, you know, what's more important, the law of man or the love or the love of God. And so you have that, that tension there of law versus love or gospel, as we would say. Uh, go and learn what this means, right? God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And right. Yeah, you're right. And what's, what's great about this story is that it is a story. This is a parable, which means that Jesus gets to make up all of the scenarios. Right. So the so that means he on purpose chose a, a Pharisee. He on purpose or a priest, I should say. He on purpose uh, chose um, these particular uh, faithful men, and he, he's wanting to make this distinction because, as you already pointed out, this man is trying to justify himself. He, he and he's trying to justify himself on the basis of the law. So Jesus right. gives him a law answer, right? So here's what mm -hmm. happens if you are following the law without regard to the love that the law requires. And that is, here are two men who followed the law because of the issues of cleanliness and, and, and um, uh, pardon me, oh, oh just, uh, yeah, just what you said, being able to serve in the temple and that sort of thing. They passed over, and maybe they had this great reason to. But here, and, and I think this is what we'll get into a little bit more deeper later, is that the relationship between the Samaritan and the Jew prove 
that the one who was a neighbor to him was an outsider, one who really, I guess, had every social reason to to hate the man, to not help him. And nobody would have even questioned, at least in his own tribe, so to speak, if he would have passed him over, if he would have said, well, I'm not going to help a Jew. He wouldn't have helped me. And so right. they would have said, yeah, you're, you know, you're right. And, and that's the attitude I think that that is toxic for us. Exactly. Because when you think about the contrast of, so the Samaritan now enters a picture. If, if you're listening to this parable and the crowd, you're going, well, there's no way the Samaritan is going to stop and help. I mean, they have this, this long history that goes back to 722 BC when, you know, Jerusalem fell in the hands of the Syrians and, and the, the, the remnant of, of Jerusalem was taken off into captivity and they were they're intermingled with the Assyrians who destroyed the Jerusalem and, and the holy city. And now you have this, this half-breed of half-Samaritan, half-Jew, I mean half-Assyrian, half-Jew, the Samaritans, and now they're on the scene and there's all these tensions. If you go back and look at the history, there, there are times when the Samaritans defile the temple but during Passover week by throwing dead fish into the temple. Um, the Jews go and destroy the Samaritan temple to kind of get back at them. And so you have this back and forth tension and it's been building up for centuries. And now you have these, this confrontation of this Jew who's hurt on the ground and a Samaritan. And you know that he probably is going to pass by. I always tell my congregation, he might finish him off since he's already, you know, but that's not what happens. Jesus throws us this, this incredible twist that he looks on him and he has compassion. And that to me was like, it just kind of stops you right in the middle of the story that he looked on him with compassion. And then he, he got down and he ministered to him with his wounds. He bandaged him up. He could have left him there, but he even went further. He, he puts him on the back of his donkey. He takes him in the town and he tells the innkeeper here, take care of all of his needs. And if this is not enough, I'll pay you more when I come back. He goes the extra mile. And I explain to people, think about it this way. If you want to take this in a different time frame, think of it as a cowboy is injured on the side of the road and an Indian comes into a cowboy town with a, with a, a cowboy on the back of his horse. You know, everybody in the town is thinking, well, first of all, you probably did this. <laughs> and right. so, but, but he's like, no, you, you see this, this incredible act of love displayed by a enemy of the pe person who's doing, who's, who's injured in, in the midst of people who are probably also injured. You know, in order to feel compassion, you have to see yourself a little bit in the other person. It requires empathy. And right. if you treat someone else as so different from you that you can't even see yourself in them, even your own humanity in them, then you're not going to be able to have love or show concern for them. And so we have the situation like the cowboy and the Indians and the, uh, and the Samaritan and the Jew. We have the situation where they dehumanize each other so that they feel, I guess, they can live with themselves for hating one another. I think of different nations at war and how, or even the Civil War, where people of even the same tribe, the same nation, can have hatred for one another based on this ability to dehumanize them. And so I think when Jesus says that this guy looks at him and he has compassion, it's revealing to us that if just for a moment, in this moment, 
he was able to finally – it's not like the – I don't think there's any reason for us to think that the Samaritan was this perfect guy is what I'm getting at. Right. <laughs> maybe maybe even in his own life, he'd, he every other day he would have just passed by, but he was able to see that this was a fellow human being, to see himself in the ditch in his place. And then he says, okay, I'm going to – I have to take care of this guy. He's a human just like me. And I think that's a part of the beauty of the story because I don't know if you'd agree, but – it seems kind of basic for me to say whenever we label people according to whatever those things are that we don't like about them, their their politics, their gender, their race, whatever, then we, we make those categories up so that we can think of them in any other way besides a fellow human being for whom God died, a fellow sinner even for whom God died. And I think that's what is the breakthrough here. And I think you said something that I that I want to dig a little deeper into. That's what I see as being the greatest harm that's being done in our culture today is the dehumanizing of the other person, um, the othering of people. Um, and so even though you may disagree with a particular way somebody says something. So I, I've noticed in the last couple of weeks or so, there's been a big dust up about um, well, on social media. <laughs> There's a lot of dust-ups, but but what I noticed was this idea, for example, of critical race theory. And whenever I talk about critical race theory, I tell people, forget about the terminology. Go behind and see what whatever people are trying to identify as a problem to, to help you to humanize the situation, to humanize the pain. I said the church's responsibility is not to adopt the language or the practices, or the liturgies, or the, or the prophets of critical race theory. But if critical race theory identifies a need in your community, a hurt in your community, if it humanizes the people in your community, then as a church, our response to that is, I see you, I see your hurt, I see your pain, how can I be neighbor to you? And forget about all the other language. But how can I see the how can I be see you as a human, fellow human in this world, just like I am, who has struggles just like I do, who cares about the things I care about, your family, your your career, your, you know, your 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 future. How can I come alongside and be neighbor to you? And I think that's what we're missing. We we have so much division in our country where we don't see the other person as human. That 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 political party isn't human. That political agenda isn't human. That um, policy isn't human. And and sometimes the people behind the policy had a real human interest they were trying to solve, but maybe they didn't do it the right way. The question is, how can we go back to what the problem we're trying to solve and together as a people of God work it out? Something for us all to think about as we take just a few minutes of a break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Haney and I will continue our discussion of being a Christian neighbor. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. 
To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Keith Haney, Assistant to the President for Missions, Human Care, and Stewardship in the LCMS Iowa District West. Dear listeners, I pray that God is blessing you through our study of His Word. Remember, if you have any thoughts or questions or feedback, I'd love to hear it. Just send me an email at pastorboo at gmail.com. I always answer back. Or you can find me on Facebook. Also, let's talk for just a second about how you can catch more episodes. You know, you know you can tune in on the radio if you're in the St. Louis area. You can listen on demand live at KFUO.org. But we know you're busy. So KFUO has made it even easier to make sure you never miss an episode. Download the KFUO app from your favorite app or Play Store. Or you can subscribe to Thy Strong Word on your favorite podcasting platform. Either way, I'm just grateful you're a part of the Thy Strong Word family. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, share the program with those you love. Well, Pastor Haney, before the break, we talked about, well, you know, something that has been sticky, at least in the interwebs, where everything always seems to be magnified in terms of concern (laughs) for real life. Um, But I I will say this. I told you the story about how I I tried to do my job even handedly, uh, and then I was in an area as a a security officer where I interacted with people, and, and I was frequently called a racist for just doing my job and i felt like after a while you know being told that i'm a racist all the time it made me feel miserable and and it's almost like why i think such behavior almost drives a person to resent resent people it's like well it's like labeling theory right if i'm going to be called that then i might as well be that right while i never fell into that trap I think that's what some people's concern are is with the, the, the critical race theory ideas is when you hear, uh, let's say, snapshots or bumper sticker ideas about it, like, you know, all white people are sort of inherently racist or privilege causes people to be inherently racist or, you know, I guess it's not a far stretch for Christians to understand that we're all sinful, but it kind of it kind of is uh it's offensive. I guess there's no another way to say it. Oh, I agree. And I and I think the danger of critical race theory is, and I tell people this, is that it keeps changing. So if you if you adopt critical race theory as a philosophy to move forward with, it it brings in so many other elements in society and other in other theories, educational theories, that you find yourself, if you support, say, a piece of it, just for lack of an argument, <laughs> a piece of it today. By tomorrow, the definitions change, and then all of a sudden, it's something you never, you can't support. So I tell people, don't focus on the theory, but look at what issues in your community are important. So sometimes critical race theory, for example, will point out that there's been a history of redlining in some areas, some communities, where people could not buy homes, people of color could not buy homes, or the banks would devalue the homes. So that's a real issue. Is it, is it wrong to point out because critical race theory identified it as an issue that you don't want to address? So as we always talk about, even with theology, be careful of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. 
because while the bathwater is dirty, there's still a baby in there. <laughs> so there are still hurting people and hurting communities. And my, my, my charge to the Christian church is, how do you focus on the people, not the theory? Because the people are still there. And what I, what I fear is happening because of what you just mentioned, people are being called these names, that they take it out on all people of color. And all people of color, color are Marxists or critical race theory supporters or whatever this is. And so now you can, you can other them because you've attached them to a theory that is not biblical, is in secular society. And now you've made everybody fit into that camp. And now you can just, you can dismiss them because you see them as something that everybody may not be. So that's my caution. My caution is don't forget that there are still people that are hurting. And sometimes the, even though it's an imperfect process and, and even I would say a divisive process, it still may be identifying things that are critical in your community that you need to be aware of and help to address as a believer. I want to use an example to back up what you're saying from the theological world. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, as people have, who've listened to the show since I've been on probably know by now, I didn't grow up Lutheran. I grew up in Armenian traditions like Baptists and, and that sort of thing, and so non-denoms. And so part of growing up, I, I was always a Christian. I've, I've always believed in Christ as early as I can think, but there was a time in my life that I gave my heart to Jesus. And we Lutherans see that as misguided, and it is. However, I want my Lutheran brothers to know that there are lots of people, myself included, who when they, quote, give their heart to Jesus, I would say 99 out of 100, or at least at least 8 out of 10, believe that what they're doing is really dedicating themselves to the faith that God has given them. If you ask them, well, did you choose God all by your own reason or strength, or did God call you? Most of them would say, well, of course the God called me. Of course the Holy Spirit called me. And, and you think, oh, okay, well, I guess that's, I guess that's what we believe. <laughs> and so I say, listen, <laughs> Lutherans give their heart to Jesus too. They just wait till confirmation. Right. Because they, they get up there and they say, I, I'm confirming my faith. I, I'm giving my heart to Jesus. So while I still think that the language is problematic and I think it can lead to lots of problems that I've seen firsthand, at the same time, let's not go get so caught up in the in the definitions that we've anath you know uh, anathematized, and not realize that there are people behind them who have, in my case, sincerely want to be Christians and have been given faith through their baptisms, through the Word, and now you're going to say what you know that they're that they're um, you know not Christian or not worth considering because they've given their heart to Jesus. And maybe I'm stretching it too far, but that's kind of how what I was thinking, you know, in terms of the language. You you take you take something you don't like and then it's it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. And so what I see happening is people are looking at people of color sometimes. Not not all people, but I, but I'm here I start to see them because they see the the faces they see on television who are promoting these theories that are divisive in our nation. They go those people and as soon as you start going, those people, you have now othered them. They're not they're no longer human. You can dismiss them. You can dismiss their pain. I even hear sometimes people getting so upset with the the fact that they've been called these names to say, you you get what you what you voted for. 
You know, I heard that just recently with the poor people in Ohio. Um, somebody said, well, if you hadn't voted for so-and-so, you wouldn't have this problem. And, and this is kind of, and this is bad again. This is God giving you what you what you asked for. Like, and see, I think we need to be very careful of, because we got we have this trauma that we're bringing, because like you said, we are being called names. We are being divided. We are being called, um, put into camps that we see the other people who aren't like us don't look like. And when we do that, we are, we are missing out on the opportunity to say, yes, the world would define you this way, but the love of God compels me to see you differently than the world sees you. That you know, sense. I know, uh, having followed you online and just everywhere else that you're kind of mentioned, that you're an excellent pastor and an amazing scholar. You're ABD right now, which is always good. Uh, for those who don't know, that's every uh, um, was all but dissertation, which means that's right. All but you'll soon be, yeah, you'll soon be Doctor Haney, which is amazing. But do you feel like, as some as a black man in, especially like the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, who isn't the whitest in the world, but one of them, uh, do you feel like a lot of your time is focused now on sort of racial healing issues? Do you feel like you've been buttonholed? Or is that some place you feel like you're maybe even called? And and I, I see this being kind of the standard amongst a lot of, um, as you said, pastors of color who now it's almost as if that's kind of what they want to talk about all the time. Is it because it's a, a really big issue now that's never been around before? You know, as delicately as I can say it, I, I guess I'm just asking, you know, is that something that you feel like, boy, I really kind of wish I would be called on the radio to talk about something else? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little bit of both. Um, you're right. It, it is funny because it's one of those things where I remember when I, st I had my blog and this was happening during actually before Michael, before Michael, uh, this is Michael Brown. So when I actually started writing about race because that's when it really took off in our country, but it didn't, it didn't really until the George Floyd thing happened. But when the George Floyd thing happened, because everybody was home, they were locked in their houses. They saw this, it, it went viral on television race became the on the forefront of all of our conversations and the church was trying to figure out okay i see i can no longer say there is not a problem and i do want to find the best way to address it so they do kind of seek out people of color because like i said we don't have a lot of people of color in our church body i think it's only 60 or 70 african-american pastors of our six thousand, uh maybe 80 that are african-american and so they're not a lot of us. And so, yeah, I do end up talking about this a lot. I get calls from schools who've had incidences going, will you come talk to our, our staff about how we can deal with race in a, in a positive way? Because I try my best to make sure that I, that I understand. Um, I grew up in, a, in Louisiana, like I talked about before, but I went to an all-white school, Lutheran school, in my elementary age. And, and it's kind of, if you think about the early 60s, early late 60s, early 70s, for an African-American to be at an all-white Lutheran school in Louisiana is rare. To be accepted at that school and not judged by my color was exceptional because they didn't see me as the black kid in the school. I was just Byron. And that's how people saw me. And so I, I learned to, as I tell people, speak one language at school during the day and a different language at, at, when I went back home to my family at night. So I lived in two cultures. And so I kind of, when I hear the race issue going on, I try to interpret what I hear 
both sides saying that neither side is really starting to understand. So I, I hear when you say you get sick of being called these things. And so I try to get uh, my white Christian brothers and sisters to understand that some of the people who are carrying the Black Lives Matter slogans on their shirts are not supporting the organization Black Lives Matter. What they're saying is, I want you to understand that there are problems in the Black community that nobody's addressing. And we want we don't want to get away from saying Black Lives Matter because they do, and no one has paid attention to that issue for a very, very long time. Right now, we have a we have a platform, we have a forum, and people are listening. We want to bring out the issues in our community while you're listening because we know it's not gonna it's gonna be a very small window. And so I'm I'm very cautious when people say Black Lives Matter is a bad thing. I'm like it's different than the organization, because um, I tell people I my Black Life matters too. So. <laughs> I agree with the statement in that regard, right, right. but how do we recognize that there are people in in bad communities with high crime, with poor education systems, with poor infrastructure, and they're and they're stuck there. They can't just move away to some better better city, some better state. They're stuck there, and it's generationally they've been stuck there, and they're generationally poor, and no one's listening. So how do we as as believers recognize? Yeah, there is a problem. What can we do to help those people in those situations? How can we hear their story, hear their pain? And so, yeah, well, I would rather talk about, you know, theology. Um, I, I, I love systematics. I'm, I'm big on exegetical. Um, <laughs> I love to dig into the text more. But at this point in time in my life, I think God has me in a position where people do listen and, and do respect how I approach it. And so I, I feel as long as people are listening, I'll take the opportunity to kind of bridge a gap that maybe is hard for people to bridge. Well, let's talk a little theology then. You know, how can the church respond to these things? And so I know that we can respond to our shared humanity, our shared status before Christ, um, to try to strip away labels, which we love. La Systematics is all about labeling things. So we, <laughs> we we love labeling things. You know, Arminian church, uh, Christians, Lutheran Christians, of course, and there's a difference of Lutherans. Um, depending on what kind of Lutheran you call me, that, that term Lutheran might be an insult. Uh, so, you know, I know that we can do better in terms of continuing to, for those who don't have the experience of, I guess, a, a multicultural experience, for lack of a better word, we can work toward promoting our unity in Christ um, and the fact that, you know, we're all made in God's image and there's no difference in that regard. But how can or should, in your opinion, the church respond to the things that you're talking about, like the things that really are like the redlining issue, these horrible actions where people are um, actively discriminated against and for no other reason besides perhaps their race or their social economic status. I mean, how can, is there a place in the church for us to address that? And this is where I go back to my favorite part of this text. And that's when Jesus asked the young lawyer, he's like, who was the one who showed him mercy? And, and I love the response. It's like, he couldn't even bring himself to save the Samaritan. He said, the one who showed him mercy, who had compassion. And so I say the church's responsibility is to be merciful. And what is mercy? You know, to me, um, I always use this example. So if you stay up too late at night, you'll, you'll end up finding those commercials where the poor, the animal control people come on, the animals are cold, they're shivering. And there's a number at the bottom of the screen when you see these shivering dogs who've been abused, have compassion and 
you know, adopt one of these dogs. And and I look at the the commercial and the commercial is moving me to compassion. I'm like, oh, that's terrible. What happened to that poor animal? But do I actually pick up the phone and dial the number and adopt one of these dogs and bring them home? Because that's what mercy is. Mercy is not just my heart breaking for the problem, but it's what happened in the story. It's that compassion of the Good Samaritan that moved him to action. And that's what mercy is. So for the church, it's not enough for us to just go, man, what's happening in those communities is terrible. I feel really bad for those people. Hey, what's what's for dinner? No, it's that that compassion of me seeing other people who are hurting, who are injured, who are living in, in horrible conditions, that it moves me by the love of Christ to pick up the phone or get in my car and have some action attached to my compassion and showing mercy. If the church models mercy, I think we will start to see the walls of this problem begin to break down in front of us. But it's about, can we do the, can we do the mercy part? One of the quotes that you have brought out before by um, Martin Luther King Jr., it was in his speech, um, I've been to the mountaintop, I think, 1968. Mm-hmm. And he says, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? So the Levite and the priest, they moved on, and their lives were no different. The Samaritan stopped, and his life was different, and of course so was the man in the ditch. And so this Samaritan descending into the ditch where the man is all bloody, of course, recalls to my mind Christ who descended from heaven and took on human flesh. He bore us up. He tended to our wounds. And then just as the Samaritan promises to return to pay the debt that that might be incurred, Christ, of course, promises to return for us. And so I see in the Good Samaritan, first and foremost, our Lord and Savior Jesus, The, the church itself. I think we have this responsibility, and we've been talked a little bit about race, and it kind of got you know focused on that. But it's not just about race. What I hear probably in my context, even more than race, would be some of the, I guess, more politicized issues or also politicized issues. For instance, things like refugees, people coming across the border, people seeking a good life, and you know, where's that balance between? The, the lawfulness and and also caring for the neighbor who's put in your midst. And I embarrassingly only give you a couple minutes to comment on that, but I would still love to hear what you have to say. It's funny you mentioned that because I remember I went to a workshop in Detroit when they were talking about having a bunch of Syrian refugees coming into our, into our country. And we wrote about that in an article for our district newspaper in Northern Illinois. And I got a phone call on Saturday morning from a lady who was just angry with me going, how could you dare support us loving the Muslims who who over here illegal or in our country and just t- living in our houses? I'm like, you do realize that the parable of the Good Samaritan really is about the fact that God brings these people into our midst who may not have opportunity to have the gospel preached to them and makes them live among Christians. And what a wonderful chance for us to proclaim Christ without the barriers of the danger of, of a, a Muslim sect wanted, wanted to kill people. But now we have a chance to proclaim Christ and to live Christ and model Christ as we interact with them. 
I said, but if we if we buy into the mindset that they don't need to be here, they need to go back to their own people, we reinforce the fact that Christians really are just people who speak great words, but don't live those great words. And we have a chance not to just be people of the book, but people who live the book. And that's what Muslims need to see from us or anybody else who's coming into our country is, do Christians live out the high calling that they've been given by God to love the unlovable? Well, that is something that we should definitely keep on our hearts. But we are at the end of the pro our program, so I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Keith Haney, Assistant to the President for Missions, Human Care, and Stewardship in the LCMS Iowa District West. Thank you, Pastor, so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Folks, I pray that you have a fantastic weekend, but come back here Monday and we'll start a new study with the book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea was a prophet in Israel during times of great prosperity in the time of the divided kingdom, and he was called to prophesy against the unfaithfulness of God's people. Well, what's unique about Hosea is that so that he could empathize with the severity of this sin, Yahweh called him to first experience infidelity firsthand by taking on an adulterous wife. Even his children would bear names that pointed to God's judgment. So there's lots to talk about, and uh, so much so that it might even make the censors nervous, but we're going to, and we're going to apply it to our situation today. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. <laughs>